But I want to start by playing some music, and sadly it's not U2 this time, but uh, it's the next best thing, uh, which is Beethoven. Um, and I'm going to play the opening minute and the closing minute of the first movement of his third symphony, the Eroica. Okay, I'd love to play you the whole thing, but we don't have time for that, and uh, you've got better things to do. Uh, so let's um, get on with this. And um, I want you to listen um, for how the um, introduction and the conclusion of this movement are linked. the introduction and then here comes the conclusion about 12 minutes later Now, um, I'm certainly not suggesting that that is based on John's Gospel by any means, but I think there are some interesting similarities because basically you have about 13 or 14 minutes of pure, solid music, and one's interest is completely sustained through it all, even though the same themes recur. In fact, that melody you heard at the beginning and the end comes all the way through, and yet each time it's subtly different or it's added to or it's varied or it's somewhere else in the orchestra. Sometimes it's on the top, sometimes it's in the bottom, and so on. But the, the skill of uh, the composer is to be able to take this, these one or two big themes, sustain them all the way through, but keep them interesting and to build to a big climax at the end. And I think that there are some remarkable similarities to what John is doing. I think he is very like, much like a symphony. Um, the beginning is very dramatic. You have those arresting big dramatic chords that sort of suddenly wake you up and think, okay, I've got to listen to this. And that's a bit like the beginning of John. In the beginning was the word, bang, we're in. And... Um, 
And then you have this sort of lyrical theme that sort of swells and fades and swells and then builds up to a big climax. And then at the very end, you have those big chords again. Jump, 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 and then it's off. Uh, so there's a great sort of symmetry to the, uh, to, to the symphony. And, um, uh, and I think you can see that happening in the gospel as well. And um, the themes that carry through, I think one of the problems that many people have with John's gospel is it looks as though he's saying the same thing again and again and you don't quite know what's going on and if you're not l reading carefully you think well I've been there done that and it's very important that we don't do that to see what's going on and what I think um, one of the things that excited me this summer in studying John was to see how the prologue John 1 1 to 18 uh, sets up the whole book so what I was trying to do in the summer is to take 1 1 to 18 and on the first morning, we unpacked that. That's what I'm going to do for you now. And then each day saw how that fed into the different themes of the gospel. The same things come in again and again and again, but subtly, very subtly developed, uh, building to a big climax at um, the end. Um, so hopefully you'll get a hint of how that works this morning. So what is John doing? Uh, he's not like the other gospels, as you know. It's not as punchy as Mark. And at first sight, he's not as interested in the sort of clear ethical teaching that Matthew is interested in. You know, you don't get a Sermon on the Mount as such. Uh, we don't get Luke's wonderful and inspiring record of Jesus' parables uh, or his concern for the outsider and the, the lost. Uh, this is a very different animal. And those, I think, more used to Paul's letters or Mark's quick-fire narrative find John sometimes impenetrable. And I hope that actually, uh, as you go through this term, you will help to dispel that myth. I don't think he's impenetrable. you just got to understand what he's trying to do. I think there are a number of images that I found helpful uh, to understand uh, and grasp his appeal. The first is like a pool. Leon Morris, the commentator, uh, has said this, drawing on what many said before him. He said, John is like a pool in which a child may wade and an elephant may swim. It is most simple and profound. It is for the beginner in the faith and for the mature Christian. Its appeal is immediate and never failing. And um, <clears throat> I think that's absolutely right. And, and as I've said, people often remark on the fact that John seems to say the same thing lots of times. I mean, you have a chapter about Jesus claiming to be, I am this or that and the other. And then you have another chapter. And it looks as though the point being made, as well as the application being implied, are identical. Um, but that's only at first sight. He's not pointlessly repetitive. He demands careful reading. And in fact, he's being very shrewd. He's not writing a linear narrative. My guess is that he f knew full well about Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account. He probably had them on his desk. I wouldn't be at all surprised. He knew what they had done, and he knew that he was doing something different. He was certainly the last to be written. He knew that they didn't, we didn't need another of those linear ones. This was the opportunity to do something different, to be creative and a bit more circular. So this is something Dick Lucas has written in a very good uh, little book called Teaching John. And uh, he takes uh, an older commentary and applies it to uh, John's gospel, uh, and he sees a spiral staircase. Um, 
So uh, this is uh, quoting from Dick. An excellent description of John's method is found in Robert Law's commentary on the first epistle of John when he writes about the style and structure of that letter. I think it is very relevant to the gospel as well. The word that, to my mind, might best describe St. John's mode of thinking and writing in this epistle is spiral. The course of thought does not move from point to point in a straight line. It's like a winding staircase always revolving around the same center, always recurring to the same topics, but at a higher level. Or to borrow a term from music, one might describe this method as counterpoint. The epistle, 1 John, works with comparatively small number of themes, which are introduced many times and are brought into every possible relation to one another. And Dick says, if the leading themes of 1 John are righteousness, love, and belief, in John's gospel, they are witness, belief, and life. And I think we can see this spiral at work if we take uh, the bookends of the book. And I want to just turn briefly to those famous verses at the end of chapter 20. So if you look at those. And this is what I've called John's spiral. John 20, verse 30. Does someone want to read that out just to save my voice? Great. John 20, verse 30. John is writing his book for a purpose. He wants people to believe. He doesn't want them to believe anything. In fact, he wants them to believe very specific things. He wants them to believe where signs are pointing. And there are four elements, there are four ingredients of this spiral staircase. Um, the book is full of signposts. And uh, uh, you can see that through all kinds of ways, but the, 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 the miracles, uh, the signs that point to uh, uh, Jesus. The point about a sign is that it points in a direction. And when you come to a sign, you don't stop there and admire the sign. You go to where the signpost is pointing. And John sums up in John 20 very clearly that the signpost is pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. And then what do we do once we've acknowledged that? Well, it's not just an intellectual assent. It is that we believe that's not about agreement to the truth. You know, I believe the moon goes round the earth. You know, that doesn't affect me very much, although, you know, astronomers will tell me that it does, but I'm not, it doesn't really bother me or affect me on a daily basis. Uh, but I, I believe it's true. Well, it's not a, a question of just saying, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. It's not about educated guesswork either. You know, I believe that it'll be sunny today. It's about confidence. It's about believing, trusting, building our whole life on him. And if our studies in John do not create an appetite and a desire for people to build their whole lives on Christ, then we've seriously missed the point. And it's all because of who he is. All because of where these signs point. And the wonderful thing is that once you've done that, there is life. Now, what that life means needs to be unpacked, and he does do that in the book in all kinds of ways.
But that is the cycle. We come round and round again. Not repetitively, but accumulatively. You're getting higher each time, adding more details to the picture as we go round the circle. And so I think it's important to have this spiral image in our minds in every study. Because we're thinking, ah, okay, we've got these four elements in place, and then you spot them. And you ask yourself, well, not that, hey, I've seen this before, but what does this add? Um, it actually gives a more sort of interactive form of reading when you're thinking, what am, what am I adding here? Rather than, oh, I've seen that before. Um, what does it add to what we know? And I guarantee that if you ask that question, you'll go deeper and deeper into the book or higher and higher up the staircase, depending on how you, how you think about it. But before digging into the prologue, um, and do turn back to John 1 now, but before dipping, I, I just want to make an important point. You see, John is not answering this question, who is Jesus? That is not the question John is answering. He's dealing with something slightly different. In fact, it's a much more common question. He's dealing with something that's more like, who is God? And what's God up to? The assumption is that God is there, but we just need to find out more about him. And lots of people will probably ask us that question at some point. Now, of course, John is a Jewish book written by a Jew for Jews and also Gentiles living in a Greek world. And so when you put the, the who is God question into a Jewish framework, the question comes out slightly differently. Who is the Christ? Who is the Christ? And what is the Christ up to if he's around? And John's going to tell us that is slightly different from asking, who is Jesus? Do you see the point? In some ways, the other Gospels are answering, who is Jesus? But John is starting it the other way, uh, other way around. He's saying, right, the Christ is coming to the world. Let's find out who he is. And I think that flip actually affects how we read the whole book. It turns it upside down. It's not quite what we expect. So that, that's why in the, in the book ends, at the end, um, John tells us that he's writing that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. We're expecting the Christ, but now we know that Jesus is the Christ. And that has supreme relevance today. How often have you heard people saying, well, how can we see God? We can't approach God. How do we know him? How do we know where he's like, what he's like and what he's doing? Well, John says, well, no, God is at work. The Christ has come. Oh, and by the way, that's Jesus. Well, let's see how John answers this in the prologue. The first thing we see is that he is the word of light. Let's think about um, this. Now, imagine you sat down one day to write your own gospel account. Okay? Let's say you'd done your research like Luke. You've been around to the different places he visited. You talked to people who were there. You, you met with and you know, read the sort of notes that people had taken you know, on their filofaxes and iPods and everything else, you're sitting down, you're writing the gospel. Where do you begin? Where do you think you would begin? If you compare the four gospels, you find each one has taken a very different solution to that question. Mark starts at the start of Jesus' ministry, or rather with John the Baptist, in fulfillment of Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3. You remember that. That's where Mark starts. Luke goes further back, but not much further back. He starts with Jesus' birth, or again, rather, with John the Baptist's birth, uh, in both cases, pointing out all the Old Testament fulfillments. 
Matthew, well, he does something slightly similar, but whereas Luke places his genealogy in uh, Luke 3, so after the birth narratives, um, uh, and before Jesus' ministry begins, Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy. And he starts with Abraham. It's interesting, Luke will go all the way back to Adam, but Matthew starts with Abraham uh, in Matthew 1. And that is emphasizing the continuum of Jewish history and the fulfillment of divine promise that Jesus represents. So it's quite interesting just to see the decisions they've made, isn't it? One starts um, at the beginning of the ministry, one starts at the beginning of his life, one starts with Abraham. But what about John? He is far more bold and um, courageous in a way. John doesn't start with Jesus' birth. He doesn't even start with the Old Testament. He starts in eternity before the creation of the cosmos. Listen again to the start. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The pre-existence of the Word, that's what he's asserting. I wonder if you notice, Jesus is only named by John at the end of the prologue. For most of it, we just have the Word. Well, that fits with what I was saying earlier about telling us about the Christ being Jesus. It's not that it's an afterthought, but that's where it's all going, because we're starting with the notion that God is at work, and he's sending his Christ. And John, you see, is coming at, the, coming at it from the opposite end. We know about Jesus. We want to know who he was, but... But not John. He wants us to get clear that God and Christ, God and his Christ, are a reality before he tells us where we can find the Christ. And that's, of course, what will happen in John 1, verse 41. Right in the first chapter, one of the early disciples says, we found the Christ. Well, John helps us to see where that's coming from. So what is this Christ or Messiah or anointed one or king? All means the same thing. What is he like? Well, here's the first mind-boggling thing of a squillion mind-boggling things in John. The first thing is that he is God. It is as bold and bold as that. But he's also somehow distinct from God. How weird is that? If you don't understand that, you're not the first. I'm not asking you fully to understand Insac. I'm just asking you to be clear on what John is claiming. The Word was therefore before the world was created. He was God and was with God. It took years for the early church to get their heads around this fully. But this was the origins of the doctrine of the Trinity. As you know, the concept of Trinity is not a biblical concept. Exactly. But it is formed from trying to piece all the bits of the jigsaw from Scripture together, and it's the best solution. I focus more on that in the second talk, so you'll be able to download that if you want. But the more they experienced of Jesus and the Christian life, the more they thought, the more they read the Scriptures and pieced these things together, the more they realized its implications. And one thing they were very sure of was that a chap called Arius was very wrong. Very wrong, in fact. Arius was from Egypt, and um, uh, around the time of Athanasius, and um, 
towards the end of his life, Arius, uh, the Emperor Constantine legalized Christianity across the Roman Empire. So this was the big shift in early Christian history. But Arius rejected the Trinitarian formulations from the day and sought to play up the divinity of the Father at the expense of the Son. And from him, the infamous heresy of Arianism derived. He had good motives, but he was wrong. This was his famous maxim. If the father begat the son, in other words, if the father is a father and therefore has a son, he that was begotten had a beginning of existence. And from this, it is evident that there was a time when the son was not. Do you see the point? In other words, the son, in order to be a son, has to, well, yes, he's a special creature, uh, but rather like King David was described as the son of God, he can't be God himself because there was a time when he wasn't a son. You know, there was a time in my life when I was not a father. I became a father at 28 or whenever it was. Uh, before that, I was, a, I was a husband, I was a bloke, but I wasn't a father. Now, do you see, applying that logic makes perfect sense. You think, yeah, that is absolutely logical. So Arius is not stupid. In fact, he's very clever, and he's got a point. How can it be for, for God to be father and there to be a son when any normal use of those words means that there was a time when it began? Do you see, do you see the point? Now, you may think this is complicated, you may think it is relevant, but I guarantee that it rears its head in all kinds of ways. It rears its head in all kinds of liberal theology. It influences a lot of Muslim apologetics against Christianity. So one of their big uh, challenges to the Trinity is based on a lot of Arianism. And, you know, I wouldn't be at all surprised if there were some Egyptian imams who appropriate Arius as their own. Um, but its most vociferous proponents probably are the Jehovah's Witnesses. But for now, get this. You see, John was in no doubt. The Christ figure was God, and John would have profoundly disagreed with Arius. There was never a time when he was not. Never. That's why the creeds, uh, and you'll recognize these words, that's why the creeds say that the Christ was begotten, not made. So yes, he was begotten, he was a son, but he was not made, he was always son. I know that stretches language to breaking point, but whenever we talk about God, we always will. The Christ was eternally God's son, and the Father was eternally God's fa God the Father. Now, you might find, and I, this is a tiny little point, I'm not going to dwell on it, but you might find that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and others have fun with verse 1. They'll say that a possible translation of the last bit is, the word was divine. Have you heard that? So the word was with God and the word was divine, as if somehow that lowers the status of the word. Um, and it is indeed possible as a translation. There's nothing we can do about that. It is a possible translation of the Greek. But if that matters to you, two things to say. You, if it doesn't matter to you, you can just phase out briefly if you haven't already. Um, the first is a technical Greek point, and Don Carson points all, to all kinds of uses of the same construction. 
uh, which means it is far more common to translate it exactly as the NIV does, the word was God, and the order of the words in Greek is designed specifically to point to that point, and Carson brilliantly argues that, but don't worry if that's not you. But secondly, and this, this is key, I think, on a more sort of Gospel of John point, this is not an isolated, standalone claim in the Gospel, is it? Again and again and again, in different ways, as I've already pointed out, he's ramming home the same point. And one of the most startling is when Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees and he says, before Abraham was, I am. But there's more on that for another day. And of course, the climax of John's gospel, right at the very end, almost at the end, is Thomas saying, my Lord and my God. So even if you could fiddle around with verse 1 of chapter 1 and translate it in a different way, Actually, it's not a house of cards. Maybe you can pull it out, take a bit of, you know, a brick out here, but the house remains standing. John is making very clear, Jesus is God. Don't worry if you think I'm dwelling too long on that. I will finish at some point today. Um, I want to think about the genius of the logos, the word. Logos is the Greek word which means word. Why does John use this phrase? Because you don't find it used anywhere else in the Bible. In fact, even weirder, you don't find it used anywhere else in the Gospel. So it only comes in these 18 verses, and then just a few times, and yet it is obviously so significant that he repeats it enough. He's obviously echoing another beginning, isn't he? He's echoing Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. Genesis 1.1, John 1.1, in the beginning, the Word. So there's an interesting parallel there in the light of what we've just been talking about. But why use word? Aren't there plenty of other words you could have used? Well, it's a a fascinating word. It actually points in a small way to John's genius. Um, Because it's a word that was very influential in both Greek and Jewish culture. Obviously because it's an everyday word. I mean, we use the word, I don't know how many times you use the word word, in a day, probably scores. But logos resonates in all kinds of interesting ways. In the Greek world, Greek philosophers, especially the Stoics, maintained that at the heart of the universe there existed a principle of order. And many of them had rejected the whole sort of Greek mythology idea of there being zillions of gods who are all worse than human beings. Uh, many had come to the idea that there was probably one divine spark or being, and that that is what lay at the heart, and they would call this the logos of the cosmos, the reason, the order, the, the, the thought, the, the logic. Well, we get the word logic. Logikos literally means wordy. And so they use the word logos. So it's like Paul in Athens saying, you see this unknown god temple thing. Well, I'm going to tell you who this is. Well, it's like John is saying to the Greek world, you talk about Logos, I'm going to tell you who the Logos is. This order at the heart of the universe. But it wasn't just Greek, it was Jewish culture as well. And there are plenty of verses, I left them there for you to look at. Um, But it's a key idea in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is Dabar, D-A-B-A-R, and that's the one that's translated as Logos. So God creates his world by his word. Well, you see that in Genesis 1, but there are other verses that point to that as well. 
Uh, and Proverbs 3 and 8 are very interesting in, this, uh, in the light of this. You can look at that. Uh, obviously, God reveals himself by his word. And God rescues by his word. So he reveals by his word in Jeremiah 1. He delivers people by his word in Psalm 107. Now, is that starting to ring bells? He creates by his world. He reveals by his word. And he rescues by his word. Well, isn't it interesting? Can you now see why the Christ is called the Logos? He says, now I'm going to tell you what's really at the heart of the cosmos. You want to know what's going on here? I'm going to tell you everything you need to know. And so the power of the word is remarkable. He creates everything. Everything that exists in verses 3 to 5 exists because of the word. Look around. Every atom, element, gas, solid, liquid, every planet, every galaxy, every creature, from microbes to blue whales, even dinosaurs, from embryos to Olympic weightlifters and concert pianists, every single thing and one is created by this logos. And there is no accidental universe. There is no dualism. This is crucial in John. You'll see this again and again. There is no, well, maybe a bit of this and a bit of that. No yin and yang. No um, sort of, um, you know, who's going to come out best in this. There's no sense that the material things of the world are evil or unclean in any way. That goes right against Greek culture. Everything that exists is good and in order because God wanted it so. He's the author of life, verse 4. And that theme gets fleshed out in our spiral particularly. The author of life has come to bring life to those who are dead. But there are hints of something sinister. John slides from the word of life to the idea of light. And there's that weird phrase, the darkness has not understood it. That's a very difficult phrase to translate, in fact. It's basically because the Greek word does not have equivalence in English. They have one word, whereas we have two ideas, one for understand, one for overcome. The word can be translated either way, and I suspect that John means both. He's a great one for ambiguity and paradox and double meaning. The word does not understand it, the word does not overcome it, and we see that in the gospel. But then, of course, if he's the creator of everything, you'd expect that. I will move quicker now. Don't despair. The word of light has a witness to the light. And it's weird because suddenly the, 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 the gear change is quite sort of, um, sort of clutchless, if you can put it like that. It's, it's quite odd. Suddenly... Having been thinking about the whole cosmos and everything out there in the universe, suddenly we zoom right in to around 30 AD with a strange figure uh, uh, suddenly uh, called John. Not to be confused with John the Gospel writer. Uh, but it's interesting, unlike Mark, John doesn't focus on his hairy appearance and uh, sort of fashion sense and dietary requirements. He's just interested in his job as a witness we see in verse 6 that he's sent from God, which uh, implies that he is the last of the great prophets. That puts him in the same category as Moses in the prophets. But notice, this already makes him different from the word in verse 1. He's not the same as the word, and he will go on and on and on about saying, I'm not the word. You'll see this again and again wherever he appears. Pretty much every time he comes, I think, he's saying, look, it's not me, it's him. 
He's the last of the great prophets, but he's still, still inferior to the one he's bearing witness about. He's not greater. He testifies. In other words, he tells how it is, what he's seen, what he knows, what's true. And that's what witnesses do. And why does he do this? Well, verse 7, that all might believe. Ah, does that ring any bells? There's our spiral again. We've had life in the word. Now we've got the call to believe in the light. Three different elements of the spiral. Already there, just in the first couple of paragraphs of John. Uh, but it's not him, remember? I'm not the light, he says in verse 8. Look, don't look to me. And for good measure, the point is repeated there in verse 15. You know, he says, look, uh, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me from before because he was before me. So, look, guys, it's not me. Don't get, the, don't get me wrong. And look how the process happens just over the page. He literally does what we're told he does. In verse 35, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he says, look, there he is, the Lamb of God. The gospel spirals round and round again to stress the point he's already made. The Christ is coming from the world, uh, into the world from the outside. He's distinct from the world, and he brings life and light into the world. But before you've had a chance to, to catch your breath, suddenly it gets darker. And look at the world's reception of the light. Now, he made the world, and the world is his by right. Allegiance and dependence would be the very least you'd expect to the one who made it all. But look at verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And it gets even worse, more poignant. Look at verse 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. I think you can take that in a number of ways. He came to his own people, his own nation, his own tribe, his own family. Can you imagine if you go home, I don't know, um, you know, as a teenager or when you're at university or whatever, and you go home at the end of the term and you open the front door and your parents say, sorry, I don't know who you are. Well, Jesus came to his very own, and they didn't let him through the front door. I think personal rejection must be one of the hardest things to cope with in life. Do you remember the great uh, Wimbledon champion, uh, Arthur Ashe? Hang on, where are we going? Here we are. He was uh, an African-American uh, and uh, the first to win Wimbledon. And he gave a press conference some years later about the fact that as a result of a, a bad blood transfusion, he'd been infected with HIV AIDS. And this is what he said at a press conference. He says, painful though it is to know that I have this dread disease, nothing could be as painful as the rejection I've endured all my life by virtue of my color. But how much more painful is it for the creator God to be rejected by his own creation? His own people, his own beloved. He loves them 
They hate him. Do you see, there's no divide in the way God made the world. All is from him. All is made good. And still, his arrival in the person of the word causes a division. On the one hand, one group recognized him, uh, did not recognize him, did not receive the light. The people who should have known better, his very own people. But there are also those who do receive him, receive the light, and they become family. Verse 13. It's no ordinary family. This is not a biological family, as he stresses there in verse 13. But it is a family. He should have been welcomed into the family because he was part of the family. He was the the reason for the family, and yet the family reject him, so he has to start a new family. And then comes the thunderbolt. This, in verse 14, is the boldest incarnation statement in the Bible. There is no Greek dualism at all. There is no Greek embarrassment about the Logos, who was God, taking human flesh. But equally, there is no Jewish embarrassment about the Logos revealing God's glory in all its fullness for the very first time. And I'd love to spend all day just on these verses, but I won't. But one summer night... A young mother tucked her small daughter into bed uh, while outside it was a a massive storm. There was lightning and thunder and flashings all over the place. The house was shaking. And finally, to get her little girl settled, her mother went uh, downstairs, uh, took her downstairs and tried to read a book with her. But the storm just kept going. and, and, um, And so she tried to put her in bed. But as she lay there, she just was stressed and couldn't cope with it, so she came downstairs and, and, and threw herself into her mother's arms and said, Mommy, Mommy, I'm afraid. She held her and comforted her, and then they went upstairs again. Mother went downstairs. You know the story. Five minutes later, the little girl stood at the door and said, Mommy, I'm still afraid. The mother replied, Darling, look, I've told you, you have to get your sleep. How many times have we said that? You're perfectly safe. God loves you, and he'll take care of you. Her daughter replied, look, I know that God loves me, but mummy, when it's thundering and lightning outside, I want someone with skin on to love me. And you see, this is what happened at the incarnation. God with skin on. He became one of us. And I want to stress this point because I think John stresses this point through the gospel. What we find in verses 14 to 18 had never happened before. Not anywhere. Not in the Old Testament, not anywhere. Sure, there had been many hints and shadows of it. There had been theophanies, appearances of God, and doing all kinds of extraordinary things in the past, and many expectations of this moment. But nothing had happened like this. This was a watershed. If I can summarize, borrowing from the language of Hebrews, this was better than anything that had happened before. It was better. This was a radical departure because now the word who existed before and who was active in his world had skin on. So to take the word of Hebrews, 
better and apply it to John. I know it's not quite accurate uh, you know, to be sort of rigorous uh, uh, so, as such, but um, I think it makes a point. I think it is true to what John is doing in this last paragraph. Just three things to pick out. There are others I could, but just stick with these. The first thing is that there is a better tabernacle than the one Moses had. Verse 14, as I'm sure you know, literally means the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. John creates a new word. If you wanted to, you know, to, to get the sort of the jarring nature of the word in English, you'd have to invent a word like tent, tented. He tented among us. So take a noun and make a verb out of it. He tented among us. In other words, everything that the tabernacle and the temple stood for is now fulfilled in the incarnation. So why did you go to the temple? You went there to meet God. Where do you go now? Not a building, but a person. The word incarnate. And that explains why in John 2, Jesus talks about tearing down the temple and rebuilding it in three days. He's actually talking about his body, but of course no one realized that until after the resurrection. And John makes that clear. He's better. Now, there's no deceitism here. That's another horrible word that you won't use in your studies, but it's important to realize deceitism just means he appears to be human. Dokio in Greek means I seem or I appear. And, and basically, deceitism is effectively a deception. It's like God pretending to be human, just so that we're taken in. Now, the reason it cannot be right is because it implies that God is a liar. He's pretending to be human. But actually, there's no hint of deceitism. In fact, no, it's not that he just sort of covered himself, you know, papered over the, the, the God bits by pretending to be human. No, he became human. He took on flesh. He was flesh. In fact, to say God with skin is probably a bit misleading. It's God with flesh and bones and blood and hormones and everything else. And you want to meet God now? You go to the tabernacle. The Word. What does words do? What do words do? Well, they reveal what's on the mind of the person speaking. If you want to know what's on God's mind? Go to the Word, Jesus. And then there's a better vision than Moses. And basically, in some ways, this paragraph, 14 to 18, is a commentary on Exodus 33. Uh, when you've got a moment, have a read of Exodus 33. This is a little New Testament commentary on that chapter. Because you remember Moses' request to see God's glory. He asked to see Yahweh's glory. Yahweh is the one that um, uh, revealed his name to, to Moses. And he says, Lord, I, I'd really like to see your glory, please. And his glory is God's very essence. His heaviness, literally, his weightiness. The godness of God. What makes God, God? I want to see a bit of that. And the interesting thing is, God was pleased with him. That's not a wrong thing to want. In fact, it's a jolly good thing to want. And God responds in an odd way in Exodus 33. There's a sort of yes, but no. He says, I will pass my goodness before you. And he famously adds, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he famously also adds, you cannot see my face and live. So when God's glory does pass, Moses has to hide in a rock. God is too dangerous to be seen. So there's a paradox at the heart of Exodus. On the one hand, we're told that Moses speaks to God as a man speaks face to face with another. 
On the other hand, we're told, you cannot see my face and live. It's too dangerous. And I do not think that Exodus resolves that. I think that tension is there left. In fact, I think the tension is left throughout the Old Testament. It's not resolved until this paragraph. And so you find in Exodus, at the end of Exodus, the climax of Exodus, Exodus in chapter 40, is when the glory of God descends on the tabernacle and Moses is not allowed to enter. Not even Moses can enter because glory is lethal. Now listen to verse 14. The word became flesh and tented among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. We've seen it. We've got a better vision than Moses ever had. He couldn't see it. Well, we have. This is just a bunch of fishermen and carpenters. We, we're one up on Moses. We've seen the word who truly and brilliantly reveals God. And to emphasize the point, in case you missed it, look at verse 18. No one's ever seen God. No one. But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, you see that? God, the one and only, and he's clearly talking about the word there, has made him known. Because what do words do? They reveal. The words that I'm speaking tell you what's on my mind at the moment. I'm not able to think of other things while I'm speaking about this thing. So this is what's on my mind. Words reveal. And the word of God reveals God because he is God. This had never happened before. But now, with the thunderbolt of the incarnation, the invisible is visible. The intangible is tangible. And to see that point made even more forcefully, look in the first, letter, first paragraph of John's first letter. He starts in a very similar way. So what does all this mean as we finish? It means we have a better covenant than Moses. God has shown his grace, verse 16. And the first act of grace was the law. Please never get into the business of playing law against grace. Because the way John puts it here is very careful. You see, verse 16, from the fullness of grace, we have all received one blessing or one grace after another. So blessing upon blessing. What was the first blessing? Well, the law was given through Moses. What's the blessing on top of a blessing? Well, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. They are both blessings. They are both signs of his grace. And they are blessings of God. And the climax of the covenant that began all the way with Adam, Noah, uh, Abraham, Moses, is the Word, who is a blessing on top of many other blessings. He doesn't replace it, but he builds on it. The grace and truth that comes. And here we have his first mention. Who is this Christ? Who is this word? Who is this one that's so incredible? The one who is before all worlds, who created everything, who is the word of God, who brings life and light. Who is this one? Verse 17, grace and truth came through Jesus, the Christ. Who's the Christ? Ah, This Jesus of Nazareth, well, there's a surprise. Can anything good come from Nazareth? 
as someone will say just in a few paragraphs, which is a perfectly reasonable question. Can anything, it's like saying, can anything come from Barnsley or Milton Keynes? I doubt it. From Nazareth? Yeah, the Logos. This is the greatest thing that has ever happened in the world. The cre creator became a creature to bring light and life and love, to reveal his glory. And the task this term in your studies is to see what that means. To follow the signposts. To see that the Christ is really this Jesus. And the result, to put your life on the line for him in exchange for eternal life that begins now. In John's Gospel, there isn't, a there isn't a contrast between death and eternal life. That's an important distinction to be clear. It's not, you know, you live this life, then you die, then you have eternal life. There are other parts of the Bible that point to it in that way, but John uses it differently. Now, the opposite of eternal life in John is not this life. The opposite of eternal life is unbelief. is living without the one who gives life, is not trusting the signs and where they point. This is the best thing that has ever happened. Don't you forget it. Amen.